Down here at home, we're entering the craziest part of the whole fall. The rut's kicking in, duck season is in full swing. What you end up with is a whole lot of early mornings, long days, and late nights. It can be taxing, to say the least. You get tired, plain and simple. I'll tell you what, though, that's why I'm excited that Primo's Hunting has teamed up with Pursuit Energy to bring you great tasting, all-day energy, for those all-day hunts. The Call of the Wild in a can produced right here in the good old U.S. of A. Available in two high-caliber and zero-sugar flavors, Original Gobbler and Blazing Orange. There is limited production quantity, so order your energy drinks while supplies last. You can get them at buypursuitnow.com backslash collections backslash primos hunting. Also, did you know you could win a brand new Polaris XP1000 North Star Edition just by being an Onyx Hunt Elite member? Yeah, you heard me correctly. All you have to do is have an active Onyx Hunt Elite account by January the 7th, 2024, and you'll be automatically entered to win one of two brand new Polaris Rangers that we're giving away. And those are North Star Editions. That's creme de la creme, top of the line. It's got all the bells and whistles, backup camera, climate control, fully cabbed in a winch, if you think about it, it's got it. So if you're an Onyx Hunt Elite member already, thank you. We greatly appreciate it, and we want to show that we appreciate it. If you're not an Onyx Hunt Elite member, what I always tell people is there's a million and two reasons to become one, and now we're going to give you another reason. It's going to give you a shot at winning a brand new Polaris. So become an Onyx Hunt Elite member today. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Speak the Language podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. My friends, we are on the final piece of this quail in the Southeast series. This is it, the last piece of the puzzle, crossing of the finish line, the light at the end of the Bob White Tunnel, and I sincerely hope that you've enjoyed this as much as I have. Quite frankly, this is the most time and energy I've ever put into one topic, but it has been completely worth it. So, let's end strong, shall we? Last week, we focused heavily on learning why, or the many whys, I should probably say, that caused us to lose our quail populations. We heard from legitimate subject experts, Dr. Mark McConnell and Quail Forever biologist, John Mark Curtis. They taught us more about quail habitat needs, the changes in our current landscape that gave us all a better understanding as to why quail simply cannot exist here like they did in the past, the way things are currently. This week is all about the present and the future. I think both are important to think about. We'll hear from more subject experts to explain those to us and let us know how much, if any, real hope there is for us to ever have a healthy population of quail again. And maybe, just maybe, we'll hear just a little bit more from our dear friend Jimmy Bryan. Kicking us off is Dr. James Martin. Dr. Martin is a wildlife professor at UGA and was simply described to me by many as the guy when it comes to quail and quail research. I believe the most common sentiment was, if you're gonna talk about quail, you gotta talk to James Martin. So obviously, I obliged. We start the conversation with a personal story from Dr. Martin as to how he became so interested and invested in quail. So my grandfather was a bird hunter, my uncle Buck, was a bird hunter. The guy I worked on the tobacco farm for 12 to 15 years, I don't remember now. And the guy that I worked for, his his father was a bird hunter. Uh, and, and another guy I knew uh, was a bird hunter. And they were 
know, this was the 80s. And so quail in North Carolina were pretty much the point where you would go out and not find any. And so there were most of those guys I mentioned were on their last bird dog. You know, my grandfather, uh, when that dog he had, had when I was young, it died. He didn't get another one. When my uncle Buck's dog died, he didn't get another one. Um, when that sounds like the title of a sad country song. It, yeah, that's yeah, it was. Uh, on the last bird dog. Yeah, on the last bird dog. <laughs> um, but you know, they would tell stories. And so I grew up listening to the stories and, and I liked the stories and I, I obviously respected those men tremendously. Mm-hmm. So it was like, well, if these are the, these dudes are the pillars of my life, you know, they're the, the major influences in, in what I think is right in the world. And they did it. It can't be wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so there was that seed that was planted. Yeah. And then there were some Bob Whites around. And so when I would bump into the Cubbies on my little Suzuki 125 four-wheeler rambling around clear cut, I was fascinated by them. So there was the natural ecological wildlife inquisitiveness that was like, man, these things are they're cool. They're like little ghosts. You know, you see them every once in a while and they flush and they scare you, but then you might not see them for six months. Mm. Um and so there was that. And then as I got older, I become more interested in science. And and then somebody said, well, you know, you can go major in being a wildlife biologist and make, you know, make a living. And I was like, what? You know, uh, <laughs> you know, because you know, before I was always thought, well, this would just be a hobby. Um, and so it was kind of the my natural tendency to be uh, scientifically minded, but also the cultural seed was there for doing something or trying to preserve a heritage that the these dudes that I really respected grew up doing and, and did until they were in their 80s, many of them. Um, so I got my first bird, bird dog on, when I was 19 or 20 in college. Um, and, you know, that, that just increase the connection between the bird, you know, and, and then in college, I, one of my professors like, well, you should go to Georgia and see if you can study quail and, and for grad school. And, and so it, it just one thing led to another, but it was that foundation of just being around folks that talked about, you know, my grandfather talking about, you know, we used to go down to Pittsburgh and hunt around cotton fields and we used to find 20 cubbies and, you know, things like that. And so that's, that's kind of my journey and it's uh, consumed my daily life ever since. Where are quail today in the present, specifically in, in the Southeast, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, all that, um, what are, where are things at right now and what does the future look like? So where are things now? Just thinking about east of uh, east of the Mississippi River and say south of uh, you know Tennessee and south. If you, you want to narrow down to that geography, sure. Yeah. Um, so there we have a couple strongholds within that region. You have uh, the what's called the Red Hills region of North Florida, South Georgia, which are privately owned estates that are intensively managed for Bob Whites. For the pretty much for the sole purpose of hunting, and there's a probably 
400 to 500,000 acres of, of land that would, uh, you know, be attributed to th that area. And then there's a similar area around Albany, Georgia, not quite as big as the traditional Red Hills area, but uh, intensively managed and they, they have a lot of Bob Whites. And then you have scattered throughout the whole Southeast single landowner properties that are you know anywhere from 500 to 5,000 acres or so that are intensively managed for Bob Whites and that quail are doing well. And then you have one to two wildlife management areas and maybe a forest service land per state where we have populate quail populations that are considered quote huntable. Mm -hmm. And then we have all the other 98% of the land base where we have very low densities, uh, probably one bird per 25 acres to one bird per 100 acres, uh, where they're just holding on. Uh, and according to breeding bird survey data, they're declining anywhere from three to 5% per year. And they have been since 1966. So we really have this really interesting bimodal, almost a paradoxical relationship where we have intensively managed properties where quail are doing really well. And in some cases increasing, and then we have the rest of the range in the southeast where they're declining five percent a year what we see in those even in those areas where populations are declining and there's not a lot of habitat left where we do management there's still enough bob whites to positively respond to habitat restoration which is important because if we ever get to the point where we put out so-called habitat and we don't get a response then we're in a really bad situation mm. uh we're not quite there yet at least according to our data but at some point it, if things continue to go like they are it will get to that point where we're almost past the point of no return without some major um interventions mm -hmm. what so referring to those strongholds mm -hmm what are some of the big factors like is there there has to be some reason like why they i mean I, I understand they're intensively managed now but are they strongholds because they've always been intentionally managed or was there just a lot of quail there and they were able to hang on because there were so many what caused those strongholds uh there's nothing magical about them as far as like there's no soil differences there's no like uh you know, ecological reasons why they're strongholds compared to some random spot in Mississippi or Georgia or uh, South Carolina. Uh, they exist because of economic reasons and cultural reasons that, uh, like in the case of Thomasville, Georgia, that was where the railroad ended. And so in the early 1900s, that's where the railroad ended and wealthy people from the north basically want to get as far away as far south as they could and that just happened to be where the railroad stopped if the, if the railroad would have stopped in greenville south carolina we would probably would have a stronghold in greenville south carolina so there's nothing ecologically per se magical about thomasville georgia um compared to greenville south carolina it's just that's where the railroad ended right uh, so we could if we did took 
the same approach in Greenville, South Carolina, and I'm just picking up a random city, we could have just as many quail there as we do in Thomasville, mm-hmm. with a rare exception. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. It just going through all these all these different topics of what we had, what was, you know, what happened and what we have now, it blows my mind. I guess it's not a surprise, but it blows my mind just how much of this start to finish, like from what from the demise to intensively management that's positive affecting quail now. But it's like we as humans have so much influence on, on these birds, man. It's right. and and I don't I don't think I mean I know I don't realize it sometimes, but it, it's just crazy to me when you hear these stories. It's like we 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 swing such a big stick and we don't realize it sometimes. Oh, uh, we're the major driving force, positive or negative. I mean, <laughs> you know the uh, agricultural policy, which is a human decision. Uh, you know, how we've managed forest land over the last 50 years. We've, you know, gone away from prescribed fire. That that decision alone affected millions of acres. Mm-hmm. Get away from prescribed fire. Um, you referenced Webster County, Mississippi. I mean, lack of prescribed fire and, and different forest management practices, which was entirely human-based decisions, uh, have, have led to population declines. Where we have bobwhites in the Midwest, states like Kansas, we still have birds in those regions because the land use decisions for growing crops and pasture are still somewhat conducive to bobwhites. If they were to make decisions that change the way they farm, then bobwhites are going to likely change as well. So mm-hmm. it's entirely a human um, human influence on the population trajectories and many of these decisions are made at large spatial scales and, and uh, not at the individual landowner scale. Yeah. But we also have to keep in mind that our reference, what we reference as historical conditions is, are, is arbitrary. Mm. Uh, so we tend to think in 50 to a hundred year intervals. And so we're comparing current conditions to what it was like 50 years ago or 60 years ago. But what was it like 200 years ago? Uh, my guess is, is that quail populations peaked in the early to mid 1900s, uh, meaning there were probably more Bob Weiss then than there would have been 500 years ago. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a shifting baseline and we're not going back. We're not going back at all because we, we, what we have today is a product of economic and cultural decisions that are way beyond Bob White management. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not going back to the heyday. We have to create a new uh, heyday that we find socially and economically accept, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Another topic of discussion right now especially around the springtime is people are always talking about turkey populations mm-hmm. i just can't help but keep noticing there's things that are said and there's topics that are brought up they seem so similar in in how you know even talking about i mean people talk about the heyday of turkeys being in the you know 1980s or 90s i think it was and right. and saying for the same kind of the same sentiment there it's like we're not going back to that this is the new normal but there's there's a common thread there, it seems like. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to go back to the heyday of quail, we're all going to have to go back farming with a mule. And, and, and I don't, I don't think anybody's lining up to do that. Uh, so <laughs> it, uh, progress per se in quotes is led to the detriment of quail, but we've also been a beneficiary of that in all other parts of society. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it, you can't separate out the cultural and the societal changes and the changes that happened with Bob White. I think what we can hope for is on our public lands and for landowners that want quail, how can we maximize their abundance on those areas? You know, uh, it, we don't have enough money to restore quail across the historic range. Mm-hmm. We just don't. Is there, and I'm asking this out of my own selfish interest, I guess, do you see any possibility in the future no matter like if, if there was I don't know, on any scale of conservation work that could be done like you were saying on private landowners that want it on wmas that that it would be possible do you think there could be a day where you could see a guy driving around in mississippi that had a setter in his truck and people wouldn't be wondering what that guy was doing <laughs> um Ran, you know, just like uniformly across the Mississippi? No. Okay. No, I, 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 I mean, uh, I guess I hold on to that little bit of optimism, but I, I think, is there a county you might could pick out and do that for in 30 years from now or 50 years from now? Possibly. Mm-hmm. But the demands on natural resources – for other reasons, for crop production, for timber production, for, for urbanization, are going to far outweigh our ability for quail management at large scales. Gotcha. We're so swimming the heart against a current that we can't move. Right. So it, it, I mean, so it's it's possible, but on a very micro scale. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So let's think about this. Let's say you get. T- $10 million to manage for quail, right? Mm-hmm. Sounds like a lot of money, and it is. I mean, especially for us, you know, uh, individually, $10 million, a lot of money. It, annual cost for quail management is, even on the cheap side, is probably $50 an acre. Um, just the burning alone is $30, as a, just using ballpark numbers. So how many acres can you touch and or effect with $10 million at that rate. We can do some quick math. So we got $10 million, 20,000 acres, something like that. Mm. That's only managing it one year. That's a year. That's wow. Where does the money come from? Uh, yeah. You know, if it's not a, a byproduct of what's going on in the land use, so 50, 60 years ago, quail were a, a byproduct of the mainstream farming forestry engine. So there was, it was costing my grandfather that had the setters in the truck, as you mentioned, it, mm-hmm. it, it was costing them nothing to produce those birds. It was totally a uh, byproduct. 
now you have to be intentional. And, and if you're intentional, it means you're having to spend money that you would not otherwise have. Mm. So just using a ballpark $50 and you've got 10 million, you're going to affect 20,000 acres. Well, how much, how much is, what's the percentage of Mississippi that's, tw- you know, 20,000 acres in Mississippi is less than 1% of the total. Yeah. Land. You know, th- there's a lot of money in the farm bill dollars. There's millions and millions, in, in fact, billions. But when you spread that over across the entire country, on a proportional basis, it's a really small amount. So that's why we have to be really uh, focused and targeted on where we spend that money for quail so that we can see a response. Yeah, that does put it on a on a perspective. I mean, it's, it's a complete pendulum swing to where, I mean, it's like our our on a grand scale, our incentive hasn't changed. It was people farming, trying to make a living. Mm-hmm. We have quail and now it's people farming and trying to make a living and we don't have quail. So it's like our, we haven't changed. It's just, our, it makes, it makes sense when you put it in that kind of, mm-hmm. that kind of perspective. I don't like it. I don't like hearing that, but if <laughs> well, I, I don't like it either, but, but you know, we are, again, we are our beneficiary of that. Right. I mean, how many? Uh, I mean, I eat meat. You probably eat meat. None, uh, we're still making economic, uh, personal decisions that are incentivizing farmers and and whatnot to make the decisions they are. So we are collectively contributing to the problem because we like the conveniences of living in 2023. If you don't take away anything else from this podcast, take away this. Our actions and our decisions have consequences. Positive or negative, our influence on the land and the wildlife is greater than we realize. You can never just do one thing. That's an ecological principle. I would like to think that all this is something that I already realized, but honestly, not fully. I didn't grasp the scale of it all. Listening to Dr. Martin talk and realize that according to him, our most optimal quail future, so to speak, is going to be at a very localized scale is eye-opening to say the least. But I've said it before throughout this series and I'll continue to say it, there is hope. Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Brad Kubechka from Tall Timbers Research Station. A lot throughout this podcast, you've heard of an area mentioned fairly frequently called the Red Hills, a historically and currently high-frequency area for quail. There's a reason for that, and Brad's going to explain why and a whole lot more. I'll tell you a little story about the history of the Red Hills and, uh, and Tall Timbers real quick, but it was after the Civil War when uh, a lot of those fields had gone fallow when some of those guys went to, to fight in the Civil War, that those fields went fallow and grew up in a lot of the weeds and grasses and shrubs, kind of like quail, really light. And so during uh, Reconstruction, a lot of Northerners were coming down to the South and um, buying up land and stuff like that and, uh, and helping during those times. And they realized that the quail hunting was really good. And, uh, and it reminded them of the, of the bird hunting from the, the old world, and they started buying up all this land. And within just a couple of decades, they, they came to the South with this preservationist kind of approach, like, oh, we don't want to touch it. You know, you know that, that, was, that was the mentality versus conservation where you have mm-hmm. to actively manage. And, um, but within a couple of decades, really, 
uh, the properties that weren't continuing to manage how they've always been managed predominantly with fire, they started losing their birds. And uh, they they hired a fellow by the name of Herb Stoddard to do a project to understand what was really going on with their populations. And, and Stoddard recognized that fire, really the absence of fire, was one of the main uh, reasons for that loss of quail um, on a lot of these properties. So he, he started one of the first banding studies for really North American uh, birds, and uh, it's still ongoing today at Tall Timbers, probably the longest running banding study in, in North America for upland birds. When, when was that, when that started? He started in 1924. Um, wow. So, yep, that's when they started talking about it. And he published uh, the Bob White Quail, it's, it's Habits, Preservation and Increase, real thick book in 1931, based off those years of research. That was two years prior to game management by Leopold. And the two were contemporaries. They're good friends and they shared a lot of um, a lot of ideas. Leopold had actually been to the southeast and and um, to some of those properties that Stoddard was working on. And so mm -hmm. when we we read that old school, uh, those texts about um, Leopold and the axe, cow, match, plow and all that stuff, I, I have to think that quail and Stoddard's work kind of uh, led the way and maybe um, influenced uh, Leo Leopold's way of thinking. But uh, not not to digress too much, uh, you know, he found that when he started this banding study where where they weren't burning areas that had grown up into thick uh, mid stories and uh, just brambles that you couldn't put a dog through, really, uh, the birds weren't there. He wouldn't trap any birds. And where he, where he did trap birds, uh, it was it was where he was finding quail. And so it was kind of a novel association. We, we think of habitat selection studies nowadays. It was kind of nowadays. It was kind of that, uh, but very uh, primitive. And uh, recognize that that um, that influence of fire at a time when really fire was really taboo. But those folks that started adopting those practices and that kind of adaptive management that Stoddard was doing, um, their birds came back and they were they were doing doing well. So uh, yeah, you know that being said, you know we have these challenges of um, in the southeast of losing our quail, but there's hope in that. You're right in that it was kind of around the 80s or 90s that we saw this huge profusion of um, of pine plantation. And what I've noticed, and because I've kind of worked in areas that is the conversion was to Bermuda grass or something else that I would rather have it had it planted in, in pine plantation because quite frankly, uh, once you thin out that pine plantation and put fire back into the system, that seed bank is still there. And um, once we start thinning and burning, um, we can create those conditions again for birds, um, quail. When I say birds, I'm always talking about quail. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so uh, we can create those conditions again relatively easy. It just takes, uh, you know, a pointed plan saying, okay, we're going to start and this is how we start and, and go about that. Now, there's there's a lot of dogma out there though, too. That um, And one of the things that I always hear is build it and they will come. And uh, that's great, but uh, it's not very scientific really and that uh you know quail has a, a 50 acre home range and uh on average in poor habitat it's usually a little larger but the probability of an individual in a landscape a large landscape just finding a patch that's restored and then it's uh, two sexes and they have successful reproduction and it grows a population it's it's probably pretty rare but it could be. So it just depends. Our expectations have to meet. Like if we're going to do some management, we have to have appropriate expectations on whether we're going to see a population response right away. If there's birds still in that area, 
definitely we should see a response from that management. But some areas like like you're talking about, of um, you know, they've kind of lost their populations. And if we do the management, but they might not necessarily come back. And I think that's happened in some situations where people just throw their hands up in the air and they say, you know what, it doesn't work. Um, and and we almost develop this sense of ecological despair, like it's hopeless. Quail, um, bringing quail back is hopeless because you hear a lot of folks that may have tried and have failed. Mm-hmm. They got to have that those realistic, realistic expectations. Um, or maybe we have the perfect scenario, but the quail were already gone and maybe we need reintroduction or something like that. But um, I can guarantee it's not hopeless because we have we have a lot of success stories that we don't always talk about a lot, you know, because um, there's a lot of failures out there too. But um, I think we need to sing those praises from a lot of those success stories because it can happen and it can work. It just takes um, time and effort. In some areas, I mean, it, we can't go down anymore. <laughs> so I, <laughs> <laughs> mystic that we would go up um but uh yeah there's uh i agree it, it's a lot of work but it becomes fun mm-hmm. over time and and so one of the managers that we're working with right now he was deathly scared of fire um when we started and they were contracting out some of their burning and he uh, he was involved with that and he watched and learned and he was like i can do that and so he took some courses and got um, got a little educated, and and he started just on his little bahia grass field, uh, and he put a, a, a just not that that was going to help a whole bunch burning a bahia grass field, but so he was comfortable. You know, the sh- the fuels were short, just a few inches tall, and he started with that and it was comfortable, and now he loves to burn. I mean, he absolutely loves to burn, and so while yeah, you get, have a lot of work to get done, um, burning is namely the thing that we're doing every year. It's our, our primary management tool. It, it almost um, becomes just a, just as much of a hobby as it is a job um, for burning. So a, a very good friend of mine has a property uh, and he started working with uh, Marcus Lashley. It originally, I think his, his main focus was on turkeys, you know, for what he was trying. Well, then somewhere down the road, he he saw a covey of quail run across the road on his place. Now that dude gets so much joy and excitement from trying because ever since then like i mean he still tries to do stuff for turkeys too but he is doing like focused efforts on quail on his place and now and i mean it may not sound like a lot from going from seeing no quail now just riding around doing the work that he's normally doing he'll see three or four cubbies when he's walking to a deer stand he'll flush a cover every now and then and that's here that's that's here at home and to your point like that he he loves it that's a it's a hobby to him. He'll send me a, he sent me a picture just a few weeks ago. He, he stopped his truck and there was a, about 12 quail walking across, you know, just crossing the road there. And I've, I've seen it just in that guy. He loves doing it. Absolutely loves it. Yeah. There's probably nothing more gratifying than to see your, the fruits of your labor, you know, over time, immediately after burning, you can see that um, your effect too. It's that instant gratification, but because um, you know you've done something, and then over time, just to be able to see the change in the populations as you're managing, I, I think that's probably my most rewarding part of my job is to get to work with landowners. And uh, one of the keys that we always start with is monitoring, get their baseline where they're starting at, and it's usually pretty low. And then over time, seeing how that population can grow, and that's extremely gratifying. And, and that's a uh, for landowners, they feel the same way. I feel the same way. And uh, and even if it's not quail, um, like we mentioned, you know, 
person that might have 50 acres and is really isolated, you know, they might be managing for quail and they can see the species that respond um, that maybe aren't aren't quail themselves, whether it be turkey or um, or monarchs or whatever, they can see that they're on the right track. They have these measures of success and they, they know that they're inherently doing good. It's it's really cool. How often do you get to work with landowners? Is that something you do commonly in your in your role? Yep. Yeah. So uh, I kind of uh, do a little bit of it all uh, research as part of our, our program. But of course, outreach is huge. So uh, we work with a lot of landowners and uh, try to develop uh, management plans and provide technical guidance, give them the resources they need, put them in contact with uh, the right folks if they're interested in cost share. Um, we're also we have also have a big push right now in East Texas. One of the um, parts of my job, I work a lot with private landowners and research on private lands. But we have a lot of public lands in East Texas as well, um, most of which don't have quail or many turkeys, with the exception of a few properties and areas. But um, you know that's one push that we're trying to go after now is to increase the number of birds that we have on public lands. So there's opportunities for for everyone to get to understand, you know, how cool of a sport this can be. And like you said, maybe one day we just drive down the road and there's a fellow with a bird dog and it's like, what are they doing? Um, if I saw someone like that in East Texas today, it'd probably, I'd guess that they were woodcock hunting or duck hunting, <laughs> not, yeah. not, not quail hunting. If you can, and I may be putting you on the spot a little bit here from the standpoint of working with a landowner on their property. If you, if, is there a particular story or instance that sticks out to you? And I'm not asking you to give the person's name or any of that away, but if you could, if there was a story that you could tell that was like, man, this one really sticks out as one that we were able to work on and really saw a cool outcome. Is there anything like that? Yeah. Well, one of the properties that we're working on now in, in East Texas, our main research area is, um, has done amazing things and great things. And it started with that commitment to management and uh, management success. We started collecting data there three years ago and uh, they had done some thinning and uh, and some burning already. This was back in 18. They had already thinned down to about 60 basal area or something like that, maybe a little lower. Um, but it was somewhat small scale and we started monitoring uh, both fall covey counts, spring cock call counts for quail. We tried trapping it. We never had any observations of quail out there um at least during those surveys every now and then uh we might see a pair or something like that but we also knew the neighbor had been releasing some pen raised birds so we didn't really know whether those were <laughs> wild stock or not but uh after a couple of years and uh or several years i guess of, of working with that landowner and and then getting the habitat right but a population response wasn't evident as i mentioned earlier maybe those birds kind of already reached some level to where um, we weren't going to see a population response. We're in East Texas, or at least um, like most of the Southeast, we kind of lost those quail populations already. Um, we did the work. We said, you know what, this is now the ideal candidate for translocation or reintroduction um, because the habitat's good, it's ready to go, but we haven't seen a population response. So we we reintroduced Bob White to that area earlier this early this year um, in January and in March. And they've just absolutely done phenomenal and um, this is the first year of that but you know we've done call counts and we hear a lot of birds our survival every single one of these birds radio marked survival and reproduction are just mm -hmm. outstanding so uh 
again, it's one of those things. I've, I've been involved in a lot of reintroduction slash translocation projects, and they don't always go that well. <laughs> but mm -hmm. this is um, the, what, definitely one of those instances where we, we took the time leading up to it several years to get the habitat right, because that's the foundation of all this is, is habitat. Whether we're talking about burning or thinning or whatever, um, it's, it's a habitat first. And so we, we took the time to get it right and then moved into that. Um, and that's been really gratifying so far. And that, that's a longer term study. We'll be doing that for another couple of years. But that's not that's just not an isolated case study. We've seen that on other properties that we work with, with mm -hmm. tall timbers in the southeast from Alabama to the Carolinas and and the mid-Atlantic area. It's very possible. It just takes mm -hmm. that commitment to that that management first. So if you were to describe that property to me after to the point where it's like the habitat is right. What, what does that mean? Like what, what was all, what did that place consist of that made you say, this is, this is good. This is right for quail. Well, I mean, this property was your absolutely typical Southeastern property that, um, you know, fire wasn't a thing. It was kind of a hands-off approach. There was a lot of planted pine in some of it that had never been thinned. And it was probably, Oh, 15, 20 years old. It was ready for its first thinning. Um, there were some stuff that had been thinned and it was a little older, about 30 year old um, loblolly. And most all of this area was, is loblolly. Um, there are some little long leaf tracks in there, but uh, it was just really thick. A lot of yopon in mm. some of this area. Yopon's really, uh, really bad in these sandy soils and in East Texas, Southeast Texas, where we're working. But uh, yeah, the first step was uh, they had burned some of this stuff uh, before getting in there and doing some thinning. But the first step was was thinning and uh, getting that overstory right. And I, you can go different. Um, I've heard different, uh, I guess, processes or um, the order of these different things. So don't think that you have to go in this order or anything. But uh, for our case, uh, we said, OK, this this pine stand typically you're going to do maybe every third or every fourth row thinning and and open it up a little bit and that's going to take 15 20 20 years but the landowner we we're working with said I, I don't have 20 years to wait let's uh let's get let's be a little more aggressive um and and get it on a little quicker so uh, they actually went in every other row thinning and then in between rows and and really opened it up because they didn't want to wait 15 or 20 years you know and i think there's a lot of landowners in the southeast today that are in their 60s or 70s that they don't have a 20-year rotation to see their pine plantation turn into um you know beautiful mature forest it, it just it, it takes time that's intergenerational work but yeah that was the first area that they started was um getting a good logging crew in and, and getting a good forester marking trees and, and opening it up and starting a burn plan and, and figuring out what was going to be burned for the Yopon. We had to do a little bit of uh, mechanical work mm -hmm. um, with either mulchers and or uh, brown tree cutters. And, uh, and then fire has been namely the, the other tool. Haven't, hasn't been a whole bunch of chemical ap application. As, as a matter of fact, uh, we haven't, had to use any chemical yet but that we're still early in the in that restoration phase you know four mm -hmm. or five years in but that might be um, needed at some point but yeah really it was getting in there with with the saw head and, and drip torch um were the, yeah. the first two things 
I really liked hearing from Brad and the perspective he has from actually putting boots on the ground, taking a property that is essentially no good for quail and going through the process of transforming it into quail habitat and then seeing the results. In a way, it, it kind of doubles down on what we've been saying all along. No matter how bleak it may be in some areas, there is still hope. And like I said, I'm holding on to that. To round this episode out, I could not think of a better person to talk to than Olivia Lappin. After all, this whole episode is centered on the present and future of quail right here in the Southeast. And for there to be a present and future, there has to be dedicated and passionate people that are in the right roles. If you happen to catch it in episode one and two, Olivia's name was referenced a couple times. She was the person who was out doing extensive and tedious long hour research at Prairie Wildlife. Olivia is now the rights of way and energy coordinating wildlife biologist and the Southeast seed representative for Quail Forever. Olivia, along with her passion and knowledge, has a lot to offer to quail populations. And I'm here to see what she has to say. Talking about having any sort of needle moving restoration for quail down or down in the Southeast, you know, these public land projects that you see, they're great. They're absolutely great for sure. But he was saying, if we're going to see any sort of real result that we can measure, it's going to have to take place on private land simply because of the amount of land that is privatized. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I mean, the numbers are probably different now, but I think it's about 72% of, or yeah, 2.27 billion acres in the U.S. is non-federal rural land, which is like an insane amount of land that is going to have, you know, that really puts the fate of Bob White in the hands of private landowners. Absolutely. And, you know, we have great uh, organizations, great state agencies working to help Bob White, but so much of that really does fall um, on the landowner because, one, just habitat connectivity. You know, you might have one landowner that's doing great. You know, Mr. Jimmy, he was talking about all the work that he does. And that's where I did my research. But you go outside, you know, Mr. Jimmy's property and it's there's nothing there. So all the birds are just kind of concentrated right there. You might have a couple that kind of emigrate out of the population. But um, if your neighbors aren't doing it, then you can do all that you can. But it's you really need to kind of have those um, just multiple people working together um, mm -hmm. to really help make a difference and mm. yeah you know state agencies do great but that's only so such a small percentage of land out there for them right um going back you mentioned something in there you you mentioned the the research you did at prairie wildlife um one of the reasons that i i felt like i just had to get you on here to part of this podcast because um uh, the list of people that were on this so far there was jimmy bryan of course andy edwards mark mcconnell john mark curtis uh and in this final installment of this series, we're more or less talking about kind of where we're at right now. And then what could we, you know, no one knows for sure, but what could we possibly see in the future? And when I was talking to all those people, your name came up several times. They talked about you and then they talked about the research that you were doing out at Prairie Wildlife. So what, what were you working on when you were out there? Yeah, so I had two um, different research projects out there. Um, it's funny, Bob White quail are probably one of the most studied game species out there, mm -hmm. um, yet we still don't know everything about them. Um, so we had two different projects going on. One was looking at their calling behavior, simply because that's how we do population surveys for quail. Um, you know, covey counts, spring, um, breeding season counts, 
our roadside surveys, you know, usually we're using that vocalization to count how many there are. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is, is we really don't have a good way of counting them. I think it's pretty similar for turkeys. Like you can kind of get an estimate and you can do all these like math calculations to try to account for the fact that we don't know exactly how many are out there. Um, but the problem is, is quail are incredibly tricky species, you know, management wise in every other way. And so they are so frustrating because they should be calling, you know, a nice sunny morning, you go out there, blue skies, they should be singing um, during the breeding season and you go out and it's just dead silent. And so you're not counting these birds that should be there. And so you're just constantly not really getting these accurate population counts. So we were basically looking at what factors affect whether or not they call during the breeding season, you know, temperature, um, cloud cover, all those typical environmental variables. But then also our main thing was looking at if the presence of other males around one of our radio collared birds, if there's other males singing around them, are they going to be more likely to sing? Um, just because there's other animals singing around them, you know, that will trigger them to start singing too. And so, you know, prairie wildlife, not having a crazy high density of bob white, um, you know, if there's one bird and there's no other birds singing around it, is that maybe, is it less likely to sing just because what's the point? Mm -hmm. You're just giving your way, yourself away to predators. You know, you're probably already kind of near a female. What's the point of singing? So then we're not able to count it. Um, and we did end up finding that birds were a lot less likely to sing when they, um, when there weren't as many other males singing around them. So a place like prairie wildlife where it's low density, you might be underestimating your population simply because there's just not mm -hmm. as many birds out there singing and they're not singing. So basically um, bring up the fact that when you're trying to monitor a population, you have to go out multiple times to really accurately try to get a good count on those birds. You can't just go out to one site one time, not hear a bird and say there's nothing there. Um, it really takes you know, more monitoring than, than that. And then the second part was um, basically just looking at roost site selection during the breeding season. So where the birds are roosting in, um, what kind of vegetation they like and so forth, just so we can get that information to land managers. Um, so they know, you know, um, what kind of vegetation to manage for. Um, and we ended up finding that they like kind of shorter vegetation, not really thick vegetation. So again, prescribed burning, disking, all that stuff that we already know for quail um, is is helpful for them roosting as well. But um, really just trying to create that mosaic type landscape where, mm. you know, if you wanted to do an early spring burn, that's great. Um, you know, that'll bring really great arthropod abundance and insects and so forth. Um, but that also is getting rid of all that vegetation structure that they'd want to roost in. So you can't just burn off a whole field and think that you're doing great. You got to kind of make a patchwork of different vegetation types. So, yeah, well, that's even, that's synonymous with, and this was, I don't know, a year or two ago, I was talking to Dr. Marcus Lashley and we were more so talking about turkeys than we were quail, but he, he brought up quail in the conversation because he said, you know, he was like the amount of people that we see or the uptick we see in people prescribed burning on their property now is great because he's seen an increase he's like but what we got to try to get them to do now is essentially what you're saying not just do one burn in the early spring and be like yes we did it you know but kind of more or less have some sort of rotation throughout the year uh i'll tell you one thing i've picked up on all these similarities talking to to you and everyone else that i've had on the series and i say this uh being a obviously being a fan of whatever kind of quail restoration we can have but it's like everything that y'all have to do be it management or research or whatever that is it seems so intensive like none of it sounds easy so to speak yep yeah and so when you were talking about you know the future of bobwhite quail populations 
that is always on top of my mind is one of the things that scares me the most is that they're not an easy species to manage for. I mean, they're expensive to manage for. It takes time. It takes effort, especially now, you know, in the Southeast, we've got invasive species we have to deal with. You know, you've got to do fires and fire in itself. I mean, we're doing a great job, like you said, of getting more people comfortable doing prescribed fires. Um, but it's a learning curve. And it's, and, you know, my biggest worry about it is, you know, the people who are out there doing land management right now, um, you know, a lot of them are older generations, you know, Mr. Jimmy, he has a connection to these birds. He grew up with them. He grew up hunting them. There's that connection there. He's seen them. But what about the people who have probably never heard of white or mm-hmm. haven't frequently or have never seen one, you know, how do we get them to really care about wanting to manage their property, which is an extensive management, um, for a bird that they've probably never seen or heard, you know, how do we grow that passion? Um, you know, we can do outreach and education until we're blue in the face, which is great. And we absolutely should keep doing it, but like getting that deep rooted connection that people like Mr. Jimmy and some other landowners have because of their, you know, their past and stories hunting with them, you know, how do we develop that now, um, for people my age, uh, for our generations, how do we get people to, people to care about these birds? That's, that's something I'm really passionate about that, you know, I don't have the answer. I don't know. Yeah. It's not a, I mean, like it's, it's, it's like, a. I wanted to, by, by the time I got to the end of this, I wanted like this final episode to be this big uplifting thing and be, you know, like this is the answer we got, but it, it's just not that simple. It's not doom and gloom. Like there's hope. I like, I, I definitely think there's hope. There's the, uh, term that I learned from Mark McConnell, the cautiously optimistic. And I, mm-hmm. I, I like that. Um, yep. but like what you said, so, I mean, this whole thing for me, there's a connection for me, but it's an entire generation back. And so yep. I'm 31, you know, you talk to the hunters coming up now that are in their teens and twenties, how do they connect to a quail? You know, that where that's not really available. That's the, that's the question. Cause going back to what we were talking about, the the landowners the private land that's where this is gonna have to come from and it's yeah unfortunately there's no like easy answer as much as i would like there to be <laughs> yeah absolutely it would be nice if there was a single easy answer for bob white quail but they do not make it easy um but yeah i i definitely agree you know how do we get them interested in it but then also stay interested in it which you know yeah. wildlife conservation itself is like there can be all this glitz and glam around saving a species. Like, I don't know, you probably remember when it was a whole, whole save the polar bear thing, save the polar yeah. bears and whatever. And, and then we don't have the connection with polar bears. So for a little bit, it's cool. But then I've never seen a polar bear. I don't know anything about them. So now I don't think about them because I just don't have a can, any sort of connection with them to really continue to care. I mean, I care, but there's nothing I can do about it. Right. And it's kind of that mindset for people for Bob White. It's like, well, I mean, they used to be here and now they're just gone. A lot of people don't even think they exist anymore. So mm-hmm. yeah, and that outreach and education is, is huge, but yeah, just how do we, I mean, how do we inspire people to care is, is tough. And I mean, I, I didn't know what a Bob White quail was three years ago, four years ago, whenever I started my master's degree, you know, I'm from Maine. I'm not from the Southeast. Didn't grow up from a hunting family had never seen a Bob White. Honestly, yeah, never heard of Bob White, nothing. And I didn't get, I mean, to be quite honest, and Mark McConnell probably doesn't want to hear this, is I didn't even think I was really going to get into Bob White quail when I started my research. I was like, I'm just going to get my master's degree, you know, because I have to, to be a biologist. And um, and then I, I swear, like the first time I held a Bob White and 
most people, their stories with uh, Bob White and their connection to it is through hunting. But mine was just holding a Bob White, capturing it and putting a collar on it. I was like, these are the cutest birds I've ever seen in my entire life. And I just, uh, and just kind of learning the personalities of each bird because we had them radio collared. I mean, that really grew my passion for them, but that's not an everyday person. So if I didn't have that experience, I mean, I wouldn't. Right. I never have that connection with Bob White. And I mean, they're yeah. the ones, Bob White are what got me into interested in hunting and everything. So um, just, I think it really comes down to just trying to be creative in the ways that we try to get people connected to these birds and all wildlife in general. You know, we can count on the hunter to do good, but how do we get other people? You know, hunters yeah. are the easiest way to get people interested in helping Bob White turkeys and so forth because that connection is there. But we really want to target all landowners, you know, there's a lot that aren't hunters. How do we get them to be inspired about Bob White? And, you know, I'm thinking uh, David a couple months ago had posted that video of the Bob White quail singing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, gosh, I, I look at the comments one day and like David doesn't get like tons of comments on his things, but this one Bob White quail video, so many people commented on it, having these connections, whether it was their grandfather or they went hunting with their father. Um, it was so fun to read through those. And, I mean, one of my favorite ones was uh, a woman said that she uses the Bob White whistle to find her kids in the grocery store when they're lost. And it's like <laughs> a family tradition that they do now. And so, like, it's there. I mean, I was so pleasantly shocked to see how many people commented on that caring about mm-hmm. Bob White. So it's there. It's just how do we foster that into actual change and management mm-hmm. for them? So Yeah. Well, so, I mean, obviously... And again, I, I tend to be an optimist anyway, but like, obviously you and several other people think that, that there is hope, there is potential there. I mean, if you didn't, you wouldn't be in the career you're in right now, you know, cause I mean, that's, I mean, this is what you spend the majority of your time doing is, you know, so it's like I said, there's no easy answer there. It's not going to sit here and say, that's going to be some easy path, but there is a path, I think, you yeah. know? Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, too, is I think a lot of people think that you have to have acres and acres of land to make a difference. And you don't like like I was saying, part of my job that I love the most is talking to landowners on the phone when they're telling me about some little habitat project that they're working on and they need some native seed for. And they'll talk to me for like a half hour to an hour just talking about, you know, their story with Bob White Quail or whatever. You know, sometimes it's turkey or ducks. And um, I mean, half of the sales I'm doing are like an acre to an acre. But that's where it starts. Like you can do a little bit and then you're going to get hooked. And that's the thing is I feel like you start it and you see the change that even a little bit can have. And then I think that kind of just grows and grows more. So, um, yeah. I mean, we've seen with um, like government programs like CP33, those little buffers that you can put around like habitat buffers around crop fields. Yeah. And there's tons of research showing that that little buffer can significantly increase your Bob White population. Sure. So who says if you transform, you know, a half acre on your property to native grasses and forbs, that that's not going to make a significant difference, especially if your neighbors have quail, you know, you don't need to have acres and acres to make a change. You can, you know, start small. Um, I mean, every little bit really does make a difference. Well, it's thinking, you know, so Mark was telling me that, uh, like take prairie wildlife, for example, he's like, he said that essentially, not essentially approximately like 25% of those birds are going to, move somewhere you know and it's like think about if you could just start some sort of grid work be it small just around prairie wildlife and kind of i mean it would be a slow process obviously but kind of like what you're saying like if those birds are 
trying to disperse to some degree, if you could just get a little bit nearby prairie wildlife, then you would kind of start to have a little bit of an expansion. It'd be micro. It'd be on a county level probably, but it would be something. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's funny you say that. So David and I were sitting on his parents' porch one day and uh, mm. we're just sitting there and I'm like, I swear I just heard a bobwhite whistle. We're in an area we're like, or you probably know where the light boots property is. It's like right there, you know, not mm. in a place where bobwhite really should be. There's nothing for them there. It's more right in town. Um, and we're just sitting there and I was like, I swear I heard a bobwhite, but I think I'm just going crazy because I hear them. I mean, that's all I do is listen to bobwhite all day, every day. <laughs> and then uh, we, we heard it again. And uh, so I, part of my research was, you know, playing female calls to try to entice birds to fly through nets and stuff. So I played a female call just to see if we could see where the bird was hanging out. And it just flew right in right next to the porch. And his parents had never seen a bobway, at least I don't think, or they haven't for years. And they were so excited. And we all had the binoculars out. We're looking at this bobway. And so, I mean, even that they do disperse, like that bird should not have been in that area, but it it was. Um, So, I mean, when we move back down, we're going to try to make his property into more native Forbes, you know, cut some trees down, open it up and, you know, make it our own little project. Cause why not? You know, yeah, was there. they want to be there. So let's try to help them be there. So give them somewhere to live. That's where, you know, it's decent habitat for them. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. How, how many, if you had to, if you had to guess, like how many hours do you think you spent doing research at Prairie Wildlife? Oh, um, geez. <laughs> I, I mean, know. they were telling, I, I heard 40 hour work week. Yeah. And it's not yeah. just like that. If the field work, you know, I was out in the field all the time and my technicians were amazing. They really took a lot off my plate. Um, I didn't have to be in the field every day because I had amazing technicians that would go out, track the birds for me and all that. So, um, but trapping wise, I mean, we trapped birds every night. Um, so we had to check traps every night, which took anywhere from, you know, two to three or more hours. You know, we did it all weather conditions. We were out there all the time. Um, but they really helped, you know, in the field work stuff so that I could do all the actual data entry. And I say the boring stuff so that you know, they could be out there collecting data, data and I'm the one, you know, analyzing it and writing about it. So, um, right. but it, yeah, it was a lot. Um, but it's funny at the time I was like, this is never going to end. And now I kind of, kind of wish back. I was, I was uh, doing it again. It's, um, it's, it's really fun. So. What do you think? 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what do you think quail could look like down here in the Southeast numbers wise? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think that we can change their population trajectory to be increasing. You know, they've been decreasing for years, but I honestly think that um, through land management, through more education, through more just interest in doing land management, which we've already seen increasing. You know, we were talking about prescribed fire. We've already seen more and more people being interested in managing land um, the way that it should be, just to just to be better. Um, we've seen people already taking land, like crop land, out of production. That's not super um, productive land out of production, throwing it into a, con- a conservation program, whether it be through. Um, you know, government programs or state agency programs. We've already seen that happening. Um, we just have to see it even more. We got to get more and more people interested in this. And then I absolutely think that we'll see Bob White populations increase. And I'm sure you've heard it from probably every other person on this podcast, the whole, if you build it, they will come. Oh yeah, um, It's absolutely true. So I, uh, I, I definitely, I mean, I'm optimist uh, that if, if we can get more people passionate about it, I absolutely think that their populations will respond 
I mean, there's so many programs out there, you know, there's money there. We want to help it. There's money, there's training, you know, we've got farm bill biologists through quail forever out there to help you. You know, we've got burn associations in different States. Like there's people there to help. You just got to reach out and we'll be there. Somebody has got to have the interest in it and mm-hmm. just reach out to somebody and we'll be there and we'll, we'll help you with whatever you need to manage your habitat the way that, that the way that you want. I really liked listening to Olivia's perspective. It was refreshing. It was encouraging. It's realistic in how it acknowledges the challenges, but it still holds on to a very real possibility that we could bring about a positive change in quail populations and in turn restore a style of hunting that was once a staple to this entire region. I mean, really, how cool would that be? Think about it. Before we wrap this up, I can't help but think about some of the key takeaways I've gotten from all of this. It's taught me, truly, to not take a single game species for granted. It's also given me an even deeper appreciation for conservation efforts, researchers, and people that dedicate their lives to preserve wild places and wild animals, and in turn, they preserve our way of life. And honestly, it's motivated me to really look around and see what I can actually do to take better care of the land and the wildlife around me. Well, my friends, we have officially reached the end, but this series is not mine to wrap up. To officially sign us off, we're going back to where this all started with some final thoughts from Andy Edwards of Quail Forever and Mr. Jimmy Bryan. We know that we can't bring quail back at a regional scale, honestly, at a statewide scale. But we can bring quail back in certain areas to, to sustainable populations that are going to be around for generations. But we have to do that with a focused effort. So we're doing that with chapters. We're doing that with people. We're doing that with you know projects on the ground, uh, land acquisitions, those sorts of things where we're, we're putting our focus right on the areas where we're going to have success for quail. We didn't, we didn't do anything deliberate for quail. God just gave them to us. Mm. But it's a long, hard battle, and we'll yeah. never get back to, you know, it'll never be the same. I won't live long enough to do all the things I want to do, mm. but, but if you don't have something you want to do, why do you need to be here?